We're now joined by former governor of Arkansas, Mike Huckabee. Governor Huckabee is a political commentator and he's the host of Huckabee right here on TVN. Governor, hello, great to see you. Hey, Kirk, it's a real honor to be with you here on Takeaways. And uh, by the way, thanks for coming and doing my show in Nashville not too long ago. We had a lot of fun with you, and people were uh, pretty buzzed to get to meet Kirk Cameron, and I'm thrilled to get to be with you today. Oh, man, I, I had such a great time. Thank you. It was an honor to be there with you. Um, uh, Mike, we're, we're all so excited. Uh, we're filled with anticipation with these midterm elections coming up. And uh, I'm so happy to be talking with you because you have so much experience in, in this realm. Um, first of all, with everybody uh, running for office, uh, can you give us a little insight? What is it like to run for office and then win? Yeah, I, I can tell you what it's like to win. I can also tell you what it's like to lose. And can I just quickly say, winning is so much more fun. It is <laughs> so bet. much better. But I would just simply say that it's a rough game. Uh, it's inherently rough. Now, should it be dishonest? No. Should it be mean and hateful? And should people lie and tell just hideous things about other people? Of course not. That's uh, that's fundamentally wrong. We ought to do unto others as we would have others do unto you. Um, and I think that there's a great need for people to be in politics and to play it, play it hard, play it to win, but also to do it with a sense of innate righteousness and mm. um, doing it the right way. That's important. It really is. Well, that's why we are so thankful for good and godly candidates. That's why I'm so thankful that uh, you have played that role so well and you serve as an example for those who are now coming up the ranks. Uh, Governor, take us to election night. It's election night. Votes are being counted. W what is that experience like for a candidate? It's the most nerve-wracking night of one's life, and in part because maybe you've been in the campaign for 12 to 18 months and you've lived on cold pizza and hot Cokes. Uh, th that's the basic diet of a campaign. Everyone thinks of it as this luxurious experience. And I tell people, you know, it's mostly eating out of a paper sack in your lap while you're driving between events in a car. It's intense. You're working 20, 21-hour days every day. You've got so many things coming against you. And you've been traveling at the equivalent rate of 100 miles an hour for 12 to 18 months. Mm election night, all of a sudden, the whole thing is over and sometimes as little as half an hour after the polls close. And certainly not more than a couple of three hours unless there's some unique uh, problem that emerges. And it's, uh, it, it's stunning. If you lose after that hard work, you're just devastated and you find it hard to believe. If you win, you're, you're euphoric. And suddenly everybody is your friend and all the people who didn't vote for you, they claim they did. So it's a miracle <laughs> you didn't get 99% of the votes because they all said they voted for you. In fact, I've told people, I said, you know, if everyone uh, who said they voted for me for president actually had done so, I would have been sworn in as president by now. So <laughs> that's part of it as well. Governor, as a believer and someone who's very tuned into politics, what is on your mind specifically coming into this midterm election? Kurt, we always say every two years with every election, this is the most important election we've ever had. And typically that's pretty much true. But I think it's fair to say that we are in an election that truly is important because we're no longer 
uh, at a place in our country where the election is the left versus the right, the Democrats versus the Republicans, um, the conservatives versus the liberals. This is not a horizontal election, left and right, and all the labels that come with that. We've really now come to a, a critical place in our culture and government in our country where this is a vertical election. We're either going up or we're going down. Uh, it's, it's the fight between good and evil. And I don't want in any way to try to say that the Republicans are the good and the godly and the Democrats are the, uh, the evil. It's simpler than that. People who take positions, whether they're Democrat or Republican, that don't believe in the rule of law, that don't believe in due process, that believe in weaponizing government, that believe in taking the life of an unborn child right up to the moment of birth and think that somehow the dismemberment of a human baby in its mother's womb is actually health care. People who believe that we should mutilate the bodies of 12 and 13-year-old girls and uh, remove their breasts and give them a hysterectomy because at some point they casually said to their mother or their teacher, you know, I'm I'm feeling like uh, more masculine than I do feminine, and they suddenly are put in irreversible surgical consequences. We're living at a time when, when this country is making decisions that are no longer variations of tax policy and defense policy. We are literally talking about whether or not we worship the creation rather than the creator, that have we embraced the environment as our God rather than the creation of our God? Do we believe that the environment is here to serve us? Or do we believe that we're here to serve the environment and to be its slave? These are fundamental difference, uh, differences in terms of, of critical policy. And it no longer is horizontal. That's why I say, from a Christian believer's perspective, this is the fight, good and evil. We believe in a Judeo-Christian ethic or we believe in Marxism. Those are our choices, and that's really what's going to be decided upon in the, uh, in the, uh, the elections this year, two years, and probably beyond. Mike, when you talk like this, it's painting a picture in my mind of a ship uh, on, on the Niagara River headed for the falls, and, and there comes a point where you're, you've reached the, the place of no return, that the current is so strong that you can't turn around. Do you think that with regard to our founding principles that you just laid out for us, that Judeo-Christian worldview, uh, have we reached the point of no return? Are we going over the falls or is that just a doomsday perspective and, and there's still time to turn the ship around? I would answer that with, uh, with a simple response. With God, all things are possible. But I would also quickly add to that, if we do not embrace God's holy word and believe the scripture to be absolute, infallible, and errant truth, if we decide we're going to uh, compromise on biblical principles and values so that we can be popular or so that we won't be labeled something and hated and put out of business, if, if we sell out as Christian believers, um, then the real danger is that how can, why would God turn this country around? So I believe it can be done. I can't honestly say if it will be done. And you just gave a great analogy of the ship. Let me add to that analogy. The pastors in our pulpits across America, they really need to see themselves as captains of warships leading their people into the battle for righteousness and yes. against the forces of Satan. 
they don't need to see themselves as the captain of the love boat, just making sure everybody's having a good time and that their church is more entertaining than the one down the street. And I worry about pastors that are fearful of their own congregations, they're fearful of their communities, of their denominations, and they don't want to rock the boat, and they don't want to take a stand and say, thus saith the Lord. And, and I'm, I'm going to be very clear, Kurt, I'm not talking about pastors endorsing specific candidates or uh, signing people up to ride a donkey or an elephant. I'm talking about people who unapologetically take the Word of God and apply it to the issues of the day. People will get it. They'll understand what they're supposed to do, but they won't if there's not a, a, a scriptural application mm. that is based unapologetically on the Word of God. Governor, what is at stake in this midterm election? How important is this? I think the importance of it... Um, is whether or not Christian schools, for example, will be able to continue to teach the Bible, or will they be forced to teach uh, that there's no such thing as a man or a woman, it's whatever we imagine ourselves to be. As ridiculous as that sounds, that's where we are. Now, you say, well, that, that's what's happening in public schools. That's what's going to happen in Christian schools if State Board of Education uh, around the country starts saying, you don't get a license to be a school if you don't teach um, gender diversity. If you don't teach that a five-year-old can make gender decisions, you're not going to be able to get a, a license to be a school. And parents will be considered terrorists if they believe that America is a, an exceptional country and a good country. If you do not buy into the lie that we are systemically racist and that we really uh, are nothing more than an evil, uh, greedy a uh, horrible country that's done terrible things to people around the world and leave out the part of all the amazing things that this country has done for its own citizens as well as for people across the planet. Mike, you said a moment ago, with God, all things are possible. How do we as believers balance having a hopeful optimism because of the goodness and faithfulness with God, uh, of God together with our responsibility to do the right thing. Uh, it's it's um, often, we, we, we go heavy on the hope, we, get, we go heavy on the faithfulness of God, but not, we're not doing so great with our own responsibilities in terms of getting involved. What, what can you say to encourage people with, with, with what to do and, uh, and how to do it? Uh, what a great question, Kirk, and, and the reason I say it's a great question is because I don't think I've ever been asked it quite so uh, bluntly, and I, I love it. And, and here's what I think some Christians miss. They, they want to say, yeah, I believe God can do anything, but they don't really deep down believe that. There's an old saying, um, you know, if you're going to pray for rain and pray to, you know, fix the garden, take a hoe with you. And if you don't, then you're really not praying with, with expectation. So there ought to be optimism on the part of believers, not blind optimism, not uh, silly and what I'd call misguided optimism. But there ought to be a sense that we believe that ultimately God is in charge, um, that he can hear the prayers of his people. Now, here's, here's the downside. If his people don't pray, he's not hearing anything. And so the scripture in 2 Chronicles 7.14 make it very clear the prescription that we have to follow. If my people who are called by my name 
uh, will hear my voice and answer my call, and I will hear their prayers, and I will heal their land. But we're required to pray. If we don't, oh, and, and repent. And if we don't do those things, then we're just, uh, we're pretending to be believers. Governor, can you, can you help us um, understand the difference between what most Americans think is their responsibility as citizens and what the founders told us would be our responsibilities if we were to keep this constitutional republic they gave us? It's good that you mentioned that we are a constitutional republic because so many people I hear, uh, particularly in the culture of today and people who are elected who ought to know better, they will say things like, we've got to protect our democracy and this group is an enemy of democracy. Well, that's fine. We're not a democracy. A democracy is basically majority rule all the time. Uh, virtually, it's, if you want to, call it mob rule. It's whoever has the most votes. It's the uh, the sort of the... Uh, survival of the fittest. It's Darwinian in nature, if you will. Uh, that's not who we are. Our country was never created to be majority ruled. It was designed to be ruled by a constitution with elected representatives who were then empowered to vote the will of the people. But there was also checks and balances built in. And this is the genius of our constitution and the genius of our founding fathers. Three branches of government, none of which is better than the other, more powerful than the other. You have to have agreement with the powers of government in order for it to function. One reason it's so difficult for it to function. But we need to recognize that voting is that we're voting to preserve this constitutional republic. We're voting to make sure that we don't fall into mob rule, that we don't allow people who may have power to have it unrestricted and unrestrained mm -hmm. because then that's when tyranny sets in. Yeah. Our biggest danger, our biggest threat right now is that we are rapidly moving toward a society of tyranny rather than a, a, a society and a government uh, of order and law and the rule of the law rather than rule of the passions of men. We look to these people that we elect to be our quote-unquote leaders when really that's not what they are. They're public servants of the true leaders who is what? We the people. So this idea that we're electing people to guide us, to lead us, to be our officials, well, wait a minute, no, no, no. If we really love the United States of America, we need to go back to the idea that the people with the highest form of authority that uh, govern this land is not the executive branch or the Supreme Court judges or the legislators, it's we the people, and they are there as our servants to represent our values and protect our freedoms. And I think if we go into the voting booth understanding that, that'll help us know who to vote for. That's a, that's a great point. I mean, people who get elected to office need to never forget that they work for the people who elected them. They're not the bosses. They're the employees, and they're subject to getting fired, and we'd be better off if we fired a bunch of them. When I was Governor Kirk, one of the things I did for my very first day in office, we put a large frame in the outer office of uh, the governor's office on the second floor of the state capitol. Every person who came in would see it, and there was uh, in this large frame an inscription at the top that said, Our Boss. And you might think, well, that's where my picture was. 
in the almost 11 years I was governor, my picture was never in that frame. Every week or two, we would change it, and we would put some ordinary Arkansas citizen's picture there. We might put a couple celebrating a 50th anniversary, maybe a scout troop. We might put uh, a seven-year-old who had done some wonderful deed in this community. It was always some citizen of our state, and we put their picture there. And I said to my staff every single week, when you walk into this office, I want you to never forget who the boss is. It's not the guy sitting in the corner office with a nice view down Capitol Avenue and another one down the Arkansas River. Um, it, it's the guy out there that came home bone tired from working in a factory, wearing a hard hat and carrying a, a lunch pail. And he came home sweating through his socks and he went home to feed his family. That's your boss. And don't ever mistreat him. Don't ever talk back to him. If he comes in here, even if he smells bad from a hard day's work or maybe not having bathed in a week, uh, treat him like he's the boss because he is our boss. Hmm. And let's never forget it. Mike, what would you say to somebody who really has a personal revival about these types of things and say, I'm ready to get involved. In fact, I'd like to be able to serve in my local community some way, but I don't have a lot of time. Like you said, I'm working all day. I'm sweating through my socks just to be able to keep the lights on. Are there some ways that people can get involved in addition to voting that aren't incredibly time consuming? You know, if a person lives in a community, they ought to attend school board and city council meetings, for example, so that when policies come up, they're prepared to stand up and say, I object to that. Exercise the most basic form of citizenship and do it in the most basic fundamental avenues of our citizenship in government. Um, I'd love for more people who are believers to say, I'm going to run for school board. I'm going to run for city council or county commission. Um, but if they don't want to do that, then volunteer in someone's campaign uh, in whom you believe. It may be a candidate. You just like them. They're strong pro-life. Maybe they go to your church and they're running for the first time. Um, maybe you can't give them 20, 30, 40 hours a week. Probably not. But give them 10 hours a week. Volunteer to set up chairs or to uh, put up signs. Candidates need folks who will do the grunt work. And sometimes I've had so many people say, oh, my gosh, I would never run for office. I, I couldn't do that. Okay, that's true. A lot of people couldn't and wouldn't. So don't. Don't force yourself into something you would be miserable at. But go help somebody who has signed up to be down there in the front trench right where the bullets are flying and help that person get elected. Mike, uh, when you want to get a message across to your representatives or people who are running for office and you want to you say, hey, this is what's important to me, what's the best way to do that? I have visions in my mind of, of you know, making a phone call and maybe that message never gets to them or, or sending them an email. What's the best way to communicate with uh, potential representatives? Well, I'd say do all of the above, but here's some maybe specific things. Keep it to one page. Uh, make sure it's typed not handwritten unless you have magnificent handwriting, which people like me don't. Um, make it where it's easy to read. As I say, keep it to one page. Don't be threatening and don't be accusatory. I don't know how many times somebody gets a letter, and here's how it starts. Dear Kirk Cameron, I think you're the biggest idiot that ever got elected to Congress. <laughs> I can't believe that you have voted the way you did, and I just want you to know I will never, ever vote for you again, and I will ask all my friends not to either. I read that as a paragraph, and my first thought is, well, 
We're not even going to mark him down as undecided. There's no point in reaching out because he's already said he's never going to vote for me. Uh, What's the point? Better way to start that letter is to say, Dear Kirk, I had such confidence in you when I voted for you uh, when you entered Congress. And I still believe you're a good and decent person and you want to do the right thing. But I'm troubled by your recent vote to allow abortion because I feel that it's against what you told me in a conversation or what I heard you say in a rally and say, could you please explain to me, have you changed your position and if so, why? And if you haven't, please, um, next time a vote like that comes up, make us proud of you. We're counting on you. You see, that's a totally different approach. And, and that, would, that letter would make me say, oh my gosh, I've disappointed one of my supporters. I don't want to do that. But email, regular mail, make a phone call, go to that person's public events, don't make a, a scene, don't yell, scream, um, interrupt in the middle of a speech or be rowdy. But if there's a time for questions and answers, raise one's hand, ask respectfully the question, and, uh, you know, it's okay to put a politician on the spot because, as we just said, they work for you. You're the boss. So ask your employees those questions that, that you want to ask. You have every right to do that. Mike, some people feel a little awkward uh, about getting involved in politics. But as believers, does God give us scriptural requirements to get involved? What does the Bible say is our responsibility as members of the, the household of faith? Well, for, for those of us who live in a free society, uh, when the scripture says that, you know, we should be uh, mindful to pray for our leaders and our rulers, that's part of it. And that's, that's given even if we were in a totalitarian government, we're supposed to pray for our leaders. But we're in a unique position in America. We actually have citizenship. We have not just the responsibility, we have the right to vote, the right to free speech, the right to challenge our government. And so when we're given that right, for us to fail to utilize it, it, it's really, um, I'm going to go so far, Kirk, to say I think it's a sin against God for us to be given such a wonderful religious liberty, personal freedom, um, to be given freedom of speech and freedom of thought and freedom of movement, freedom of assembly, and then to abuse it by never being grateful enough to it for it that we would uh, exercise the full rights of our citizenship. Let's just remember, and I'll be quick about this, but the Apostle Paul was a Roman citizen. So when he was accused of, of insurrection, what did he do? Did he say, oh, yes, throw me in jail. I don't care. No, he said, I, I want to appeal my case to Caesar. So what he was doing was saying, I'm a Roman citizen. I have certain rights as a Roman citizen. One of them is I get to appeal any judgment against me all the way to Caesar. And he exercised his rights of citizenship. That's a great example for what we ought to be doing. Mike, how does the the right to vote set us apart from other countries around the world? I think sometimes we we just don't understand what the alternative is. I think a lot of people just think, well, you know what, it might be kind of nice for other people to make the decisions for us, you know, just kind of pay for my food, pay for my education and my health care, and, and I don't have to sort of figure this stuff out for myself. Well, what people ought to do is to, to realize voting is not voting for someone who is promising you something, because when they do, they're promising you something that they're going to give you with your own money. 
So government has no money it doesn't take from its people. So unless you want there to be some free gift out there for people that you're going to pay for, you better vote for people who have a sense of of real fiscal responsibility and who don't want to spend more money than they take in. As individuals, we can't spend money we don't have and we can't borrow money we can't afford to pay back. Why should we vote for people who spend money we do not have and who borrow money that, as a country, we can't afford to pay back? So make your vote about, does this person believe in the Constitution? Do they want to protect the basic rights, even of the people we disagree with? Because if, if you only want to protect the rights of the people who agree with you, that's not real citizenship in the United States. Our job as citizens is to protect not just the rights of the majority, but protect the rights of the minority without letting the minority run the country or letting the majority run over the minority. We, we have a brilliant, I consider it a, a, a God-inspired government. It's brilliant in its really construction because it even assumes that we are basically sinners. Uh, That's right. How, what kind of government makes that assumption that because we're sinners, we need checks and balances. We need other branches of government to keep us from getting out of control, which is the reason we have three branches rather than just elect a monarch and he has sovereign rule and dictatorial authority. But if we don't exercise within that role of three branches mm-hmm. and we don't have the accountability and we don't do the checks and balances, well, we might as well be a totalitarian government. And quite frankly, we are. And that's the tyranny that we can't afford to, to, to experience. Some people are saying, look, it's all or nothing. If yeah. you're not pro-life, I'm not voting for you. And others would say, well, I don't have any options who are pro-life, but I want to go with the one who can at least get us going in the right direction, even if they're not everything I'm hoping that they're going to be. And they can win. Well, I think uh, voting for someone who can win is important, but voting for someone who shares basic core values is important. But be careful not to say, I'm only going to vote for a person who checks every box that I believe in. Because that may be a tough deal to find somebody uh, that is identical to one's beliefs. And I would say this, if a person says, I'm only going to vote for a person who thinks just like me, then you better be the candidate. Because the only person who will think just like you will be you. So be the candidate. Go out there and run. But if you're not going to do that, it's a matter of looking at the options and saying, who reflects the closest, not just to what they say, but to what they're going to do when they're in office. I I know some people that are not necessarily righteous. Uh, I'll never find them in church on Sunday morning. But when it comes to their vote, they're going to vote for things that do matter. They will vote, for example, to uh, protect human life. They will vote to believe that mothers and fathers raise better kids than the governments do, and they believe in parental rights rather than government control of our children. Uh, They believe that uh, we ought to bless Israel, and God will bless us if we do, rather than uh, to be a curse to Israel. Uh, Those are important issues to me as a Christian believer, but there may be somebody who doesn't share my faith, but who shares those views. And I always say that if, if I had a terminally ill family member and that person needed surgery that might save his or her life, I had two choices of a doctor. One had a bedside manner that was atrocious. The doctor was vulgar and rude, uh, came in and basically just said, look, if you want me to do the surgery, I'll do it, but I ain't got time to ask, answer a lot of questions. The other option 
uh, for a surgeon, came in, sat on the side of the bed, held your relative's hand, prayed, was so kind and gentle. But here's the difference. That rough bedside manner doctor had done the surgery 700 times and 98% of his patients lived. The other one is just right out of med school and residency. He's only done the surgery 12 times and eight of his patients died. Who do you pick to do the surgery? Well, let me tell you who I pick. I'll worry about the bedside manner on another level. I want the very best surgeon I can get for my loved one because his job is not to be nice to me, is not to make me feel comfortable. His job is to save the life of my relative, and that's why I hire him to be my doctor. That's how we ought to look at how we hire the people to service in government. Who's going to get that job done? And then we pray for them, and then we vote for them, and we trust God to work all things together for good. Hi, I'm Kirk Cameron. Thanks for listening to this episode of Takeaways. If you love the conversations that we're having, please follow or subscribe to this podcast to never miss any of this great content. And please consider leaving a positive rating and a review to help others like you discover this show.